If you'll open a Bible to the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament, chapter 16. I'll read beginning in verse 19. If you're using a Bible from the pew, that's page 876. For the past uh, couple of months, I've been bringing sermons from some of the parables of Jesus. And I plan to do the same today in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. Hear God's word. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So ends the reading of God's holy word. I'm going to lead us in prayer in a moment, but before I do, if if you have ever tried to discuss your faith in Christ with a person who's decidedly an unbeliever, then you are keenly aware that only by the power of God's Spirit are any of us able to have our eyes open to understand the things of God. If you're like me, I have some pretty vivid memories when I was an unbeliever of talking with Christian friends before I became a Christian, and I remembered how nonsensical all this sounded. It was foolishness. And that is described in Corinthians when it says, "...the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him." And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But that's true also for the believer as we come to the Scriptures like we're doing now. We need the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit who enables and enlightens and illuminates our hearts and our minds to God's Word. And we need to remember that as we approach this very weighty portion of scripture. Let me lead us in prayer. Oh God, we come now as we've been in worship. We ask that your Holy Spirit might open our eyes, 
that if we do not have faith in Christ, if we have not been awakened to the truth, may you be pleased to use the next few moments toward that end, to give faith that we might believe, to give ears to hear and eyes to see. For those of us that have the Holy Spirit, may you illuminate our hearts and minds now as we look into your word to understand and to apply your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Context is very important with all of the parables. It's important with this parable. So let me give you the context. It started back in the previous chapter at the very beginning, chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, where we are told that the tax collectors and the sinners, the irreligious people, the religious outcast, were coming to Jesus. They were drawing near to him. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, complained. And they judged him, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. Uh, and so they are condemning of Jesus for doing that. So in response to that condescending, arrogant attitude, he told the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. Now we come to chapter 16. Jesus, at the beginning, gives instruction about money, and it's there that he says such things as no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Then in verse 14, it tells us the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. So in response to that, to the ridicule from the Pharisees, who were condescending toward the social outcasts, the tax collectors, the sinners, the religiously social outcasts, they're insulting and ridiculing him now because of what he said about money. In response to that... Among other things, he tells this parable. It's a simple parable to understand, though it's very weighty. You've got a scene here and now, and then the, then the, the camera shifts. And you've got a scene of after this life at death, and then there's some application. So let's begin in verse 19 briefly. You see the rich man. We meet these two characters. The rich man, he's dressed in purple garments. Why does it mention that? Because purple dye at that time in history in that place was extracted from a purple snail. A purple snail could yield one drop of purple dye. It was the most expensive and the rarest of all dyes of that time. It was the color of the kings. It was the color of royalty. And this rich man is clothed in purple. Extravagantly expensive clothes and with fine linen. Did he wear purple? Did he wear purple because it was good stewardship? No, he did it to show off his wealth. He had it, and he wanted to flaunt it. He wanted everyone to know he was rich. He lived in luxury every day, it tells us. He feasted every day. It was common in those days for the common people to be fortunate if they had meat once a week. And yet this man feasted, apparently, at every meal. He was enormously wealthy. We would call him super rich today. Note the contrast. The other man named Lazarus. And you have to note, of all the parables Jesus told, this is the only parable where someone is named. And his name is Lazarus, which means God is my help. And perhaps Jesus gives him that name because it's obvious the rich man did not help him. But God helped him. He's disabled. He cannot walk. Whether he was born that way or it happened through an accident, we don't know. But the condition forced him to beg. 
And so he's been carried and left, whether that happened daily or whether he just lived there, you might say, by the gates of this rich man. And he's covered with sores. He's a pathetic sight, open wounds which oozed. He has a miserable life, and it tells us he's longing to eat from what fell from the the rich man's table. He's eating out of the garbage. He's eating out of the garbage like a dumpster by this man's house. And he's in proximity, close proximity, these two men are to one another. But their lives are worlds apart. As we'll see in a moment, it's apparent the rich man knew who he was, but there's no connection. There's no interaction between them. Luke writes, even the dogs came and licked his swords. It it seems the only creatures concerned to help this man were the dogs, because obviously the rich man was not, not helping So there's this stark contrast. Rich, well-to-do, has it all. This man has nothing. Now, verse 22 shifts to the next scene, after this life. It changes abruptly. The time came, it says, when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now, although nothing has been said about the man's faith, about Lazarus' faith, we know apparently that he was a faithful servant of God. He was a believer. Now, this passage, this is just off the subject, but this passage poses a problem for those who teach and who believe in a health and wealth gospel. That if you're a follower of God, then you will be healthy and you will be wealthy. Well, that doesn't explain this passage. It says he went, he was carried by the angels, God's messengers, to Abraham's side. It's a metaphor for heaven. Abraham was the father of the faithful. So it's a way of speaking, saying that he's taken there to be with his father in the faith. He's taken there by the angels. He had suffered greatly, had been dishonored in this life, and now he enjoys the highest honors in this place. Then it tells us the rich man also died, and he was buried. We can assume that he probably had a funeral service with great pomp and ceremony, maybe huge amounts of flowers, large crowds of mourners. But verse 23 doesn't pay any attention to that. It just says he ended up in Hades and being in torment. These are haunting words. These are haunting words. In Greek literature, Hades was the place of everyone who died. It's the abode of the departed. But in the New Testament, Hades is never the place of those who are right with God. It is never the place of the saved. It's also called Gehenna which is the place of punishment. So Jesus here is making a point, but he's also giving a warning. And here is the warning. Remember the context, these people who loved money and who were condemning him. The context is that death strips away all worldly veneers. And all the things that dazzle us in this life, they're gone. They're gone in the next. And there we have the reality as God reckons it. See, all along, this poor man, Lazarus, had been this beggar. And even though by this, in this life, he was impoverished and he had nothing, in God's eyes, he was rich. The rich man who had everything, and he would appear to be a type of life you'd like to have, in reality, had nothing. He was poor. J.C. Ryle, the Anglican who great preacher and Bible commentator a hundred years ago in England, he said about this, let us never give way to the common idea 
that men are to be valued according to their income, and that the man who has the most money is the one who ought to be most highly esteemed. He says the general teaching of the Bible is flatly opposed to it. So now we see that the, the rich man has, has grown even poorer, and the rich poor man has grown richer. We see here that Lazarus is with God, and he enjoys many blessings. Hell is a place of eternal loss, and heaven is a place of eternal gain. Now we have a shocking conversation that begins in verse 23. The conversation is between the man in torment and Abraham. Jesus is speaking in the parable through Abraham. It says in verse 23, Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. He saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So the rich man closed his eyes in death in this life, and he opens them in torment. Like that. And part of the torment was that he sees the other place. He sees Abraham, and he sees Lazarus, and it says, far off. He knew Lazarus. He knew who he was. He probably had seen him maybe every day, maybe at least a couple of times a week. There by his gate. No indication there was ever any interaction. No indication he'd ever spoken to him. He's fully conscious. He has his senses. He has his memory. He's not been annihilated, as some would teach, that hell is. He's not been obliterated. Now, it's true this passage can raise more questions about heaven and hell than it can answer. For one, in the intermediate state, we know that we don't have bodies, so how did he see? I'm just telling you from the Bible. I'm not questioning, but I'm just saying that you have to use caution and I'm not just saying this, those who know far more than I about the Bible, who believe the Bible, say you have to go to other passages in the Bible to learn about heaven and hell. John Calvin put it this way about this passage. The Lord is painting a picture which represents the condition of the future life in a way that we can understand. The sum of it is that believing souls, when they leave the body, lead a joyful and blessed life outside of this world and that for the reprobate is prepared terrifying torments which can no more be conceived by our minds than can the infinite glory of God. But the rich man calls out to Lazarus. Now he calls to Abraham. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in this flame. Talk about despair. Talk about a paradigm shift, a sudden paradigm shift, a change in one's worldview. And the emphasis is on how suddenly it happens. James Boyce said, in the moments following death, though the rich man may not have had any thoughts of heaven in this life, he now learned that there was a heaven as well as hell and knew that he was not in heaven. The rich man calls him Father Abraham. He's a child of the covenant. He's of Jewish descent. He was from the covenant community. He had the promises of God, which he had ignored in this life. He begs for mercy, even the smallest mercy. What is clear is that hell is a terrible place from which its inhabitants long for the smallest relief. He doesn't ask for a swimming pool. He doesn't ask for a large glass of ice water. 
He pleads for just one drop of water. This is a horrible picture. It is a horrible, haunting picture that Jesus is painting. And Abraham replies back, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here. You are in anguish. So Abraham, in a sense, is saying, You had your chance. All those good things that were provided for you, and through that you had no compassion and you had no mercy, so why are you asking for mercy now? The rich man could have had compassion on Lazarus, but he chose not to do so. And now this man, who had been a prince, so to speak, is a beggar. And he's begging, he's begging Abraham to send Lazarus, but Lazarus says he cannot. I'm sorry, Abraham says he cannot, for between us and you is a great chasm that's been fixed. If you think people get prayed out of hell, you need to look at this passage very carefully. There's nothing here about that. In effect, when it says the chasm has been fixed, Abraham is saying that is ultimate separation. There's this great unbridgeable chasm that's been fixed. In the, le- in the next life, according to this, there is no possibility of moving from one place to another. So the rich man, realizing he apparently agrees, he realizes there's no hope for himself, he makes a request. In verse 27, he thinks about home. And he, 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 he answered, I beg you, Father, send, send Lazarus into my father's house. I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they come to this place of torment. He begs Abraham to send Lazarus back to earth to, to warn his five brothers. Since he cannot escape, he, his concern shifts to his brothers. You ever hear someone say, and I've heard this several times through the years. I don't remember ever saying it. I probably thought it. I don't care if I go to hell. After all, all my friends will be there. There's no friendship in hell. There's no companionship in hell. That is a naive, foolish statement. So he asked... Abraham, send Lazarus back to my brothers. And look what Abraham answers. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What's Abraham mean? They have the word of God. They have the writings of the prophets. They have the first five books of the Bible, the writing of Moses. Now, when Jesus told this, the Old Testament had been finalized. It had been put together. The one we have now, the 39 books of the Old Testament, had been finalized by like the 4th century B.C. So they had that. That was available. And he says they have the Scriptures. Let them hear the words of the Scriptures. The implication is that they, had, they have what Lazarus had. I mean, what Lazarus had had and what the rich man had had. But Lazarus had listened to the words of Moses and the prophets. And Lazarus was in heaven. So Abraham questions why this man's brother brothers needed a special messenger to warn them of the place. He's saying God's already provided a wealth of information. He's spoken through Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Micah and Joel and Nahum and others. We've been warned about these things for centuries. Verse 30, though, the rich man thought there had to be another, a better way to warn them. If someone just goes to them from this place, if someone from the dead, somebody they recognize, like Lazarus, If he goes back and he tells them, then they will repent. It's as though he's saying, I know they have the Scriptures, but that's not enough. Verse 31, 
Abraham says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Do you realize what he's saying? Talk about the power of the scriptures. He's saying this. Imagine this morning, if I stood before you in a credible way and said, God has moved here in a special way, and I want you to look. I want you to look at that back door and someone who's been dead for 50 years and buried in Rose Hill Cemetery comes walking through that door and bears testimony saying everything that scripture says is real. There is life after death and it will be one place or the other. And if, if, if we had that or if we had a preacher like me standing up here saying this is what the scripture says, this is what it teaches, Abraham is saying this is more powerful than that. And I think inside of us, we think, no, 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 that would get my attention. But this, you know, I can hear this on the radio any day. I mean, switch the channels and got 50 Bible teachers on, or I can come to church here or anywhere else, and I can download the sermons. And he's saying, if they won't listen to this, they're not going to listen to that guy either coming from the grave. We have available to us our Bibles, and they are sufficient. What he's saying is this is sufficient. Don't underestimate the power of the message, the simple gospel message. It's a myth to think that the real need of unbelievers, the real need of the unbelieving, or even the nominally believing, it's a myth to think what they really need is more information. In most cases, in most cases, especially in America, and especially in the South, it's not an issue of needing more information before someone believes. They don't need stronger arguments. They don't need more convincing proofs. The problem of unbelief, in most cases, is a problem of the will. People do not believe because they will not believe. They choose not to believe. They refuse to believe. They don't want to believe. Moses and the prophets, he says, are witness enough. And the rich man can't believe this. He's arguing with Abraham. No, Father Abraham, it says in verse 30. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He's confident. If you just pull off a sign and a wonder, not this, not the, not the book, it shows the dead man knows that his family doesn't take Scripture seriously. It's not authoritative. They don't listen to its warnings. But if they had a dead person come back, and the assumption is that if they only had a convincing proof, they would believe. We hear it today. The skeptic says, I want some sort of miracle. Listen, if there was some sort of miracle, if I saw a man come out of a tomb that's been dead for three days, then I'd believe. I, I remember as, as a youngster, as a, teen, a teenager, being at a YMCA in my hometown, and there was a, gymna a gymnastics teacher. He was an instructor. And he was a skeptic. I don't know if he claimed to be an agnostic, but he said, here's the way he put it. I'm going to mimic him. I don't think any of that's true. I just can't believe any of that. Kind of stared off and went, but if they ever find that ark, meaning Noah's ark, he was saying, and I guess he really believed, if they find that ark and they're sure they found it, I'm in trouble. I may have to believe that. I would venture to say it wouldn't matter if he had ten of the arks in his front yard. He would still choose not believe. I mean, it's a choice to believe. I remember in college being in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. 
I haven't been back, I think, except once since then. But I was at a Christian conference, and a friend of mine and I were walking down the street at night, and there were a lot of people there, and we got in a conversation with two guys. They, they looked about 20, 25 years old, these two fellows. They were sitting on this porch of this hotel. We got in a conversation, a protracted conversation, about Christianity and about Jesus. And one of the fellows was quiet the whole time. The other guy was one objection and argument after another. They were good questions. Why do you think this is real? Why do you think the Bible's real? How do you know somebody just didn't write this and put it together, or write the prophecies in after the fact? How do you know Jesus? How do you believe that he was a real person? How do you know he was the Son of God? What about the resurrection? And the guy with me was very well-read, very articulate, very patient, and very wise, and answered question after question after question after question. And finally, the fellow, in a belligerent way, said, I am not going to believe unless Jesus comes down and stands right in front of me and I can look him in the face. That is when I will believe. And my friend, to his credit, gently said, that will happen, but then it's going to be too late. And he shifted his eyes to the other guy who hadn't said a word and said, what do you think about this? And the guy said, I want this. And right there, expressed his faith in Christ to save him. That's what we think is needed. If I only had more convincing proof. We don't see that in the Bible. Let me give you some examples. It's never been that way before. Did Israel believe God when he sent the plagues on Egypt? How about when he parted the Red Sea? No. That whole generation that saw all those things had to die off in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Did Israel believe when God sent fire down on Mount Carmel through Elijah? How about when Elijah was taken up in a, into heaven in a chariot of fire? Or how about nearer in history? How about in the New Testament when Jesus walked on the water or fed the 5,000 or raised the dead, Jairus' daughter and Lazarus? Were any of these mighty acts convincing? No, at least not to those who determined not to believe. Our human hearts are remarkably adept at finding excuses for unbelief. Now, as a pastor, any of us that are pastors, we probably spend more time talking to skeptics than most people. Not everybody. Some of you, if you're a professor or teacher or you're in an arena where you do that, and I, uh, I'm doing that right now with a class that I'm teaching. And I'm trying to give all the reasons for the Christian faith to people that have never heard the Christian faith. But back again, often to people that have heard it, they've been raised around the church, they've been raised where they were exposed to the Bible and so forth, uh, I find that usually their adeptness for excuses for unbelief, they just constantly shift the ground. So we can answer one objection. How about the historic objections, like about the virgin birth or, or Noah's Ark or, or Jonah and the great fish or the resurrection? Uh, and and so I'll try and give answers, and guess what? Or they say, okay, that's sufficient. No, the ground shifts a little bit. Then they start raising moral objections. What about the problem of evil? Well, if God's so good, why would he allow so much suffering? So you try and answer that a little bit. Then you get some answers there, and they well, how about the religious objections? Why are there so many denominations? How can you say that other religions are wrong? So you answer that, and then the ground shifts again. And it's, okay, why are there so many hypocrites in the church? And it goes on and on and on, one one reason not to believe after another, and J.C. Ryle, back to him again, over a hundred years ago, noted the same thing in the 19th century, and he said this, 
It is not more evidence that is needed in order to make men repent, but more heart and will to make use of what they already know. Scripture is sufficient to the truth. It's a sufficient witness to the Word of God, to the truth of God. It is all the witness that we need. It is all the proof that we need to avoid hell and to arrive in heaven. Now, I'm not saying, I mean, we are to give a reason for the hope within us. You understand, right? I'm not denying that we should defend our faith. But there comes a point where, like, R.C. Sproul told that he was with John Gerstner one time and stood with him after a meeting and heard Dr. Gerstner answer question after question after question after question by a person raised. Finally, Dr. Gerstner said, let me ask you a question. If I could answer every question you raised, would you put your faith in Christ and trust him and follow him? And the person said, no. And he said, you don't have an intellectual problem. You've got a moral problem. You're choosing not to believe. And that's what Abraham says back to this man in Hades. And that is that they've, they've got sufficient testimony. They don't need a, what you think would be this fabulous miracle. You know, remorse is a hard emotion to live with. It's one of the most difficult emotions for anybody to live with is remorse. Nothing is more remorseful than the thought that you had an opportunity for life with God in heaven and you missed it forever. It's a tragedy. Honestly, it's almost beyond imagination. This is one of those passages of Scripture you say, I know it's there and I need to read it, but I'd rather not. And why don't we move on to something a little more up than this thing? Yet that's what Jesus is saying that the rich man experienced. It had been his choice. It had been his choice. But you still have that opportunity. It has not been lost for you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you are not yet in a position like that rich man who was in hell. For you, it's not too late. You can pray. You can seek God. You can turn from your sin and believe that Jesus is your Savior. You don't need to wait for signs. In fact, don't. Don't wait for miracles in this life. You have the Scriptures. You have the Bible. And yes, you and I and everyone may have a whole bunch of unanswered questions. But don't give up. And don't give in to the thought that, well, I, you know, we can never know in this life. I guess I'll just have to die and find out what happens. No, you don't have to do that. Now's the time to get right with God. Now's the time to repent and to turn to Christ, the only Savior of the world. And he saves those who cannot save themselves. Do you wish to escape the awful judgment? That this rich man experienced, do you wish to enter the blessed eternity of Lazarus? Then recognize the only way of salvation is Christ, that he is the way and the truth and the life, and he is the only way we come to the Father. So in closing, how can you, how can I ensure that we will end up on the right side of that abyss, of that chasm? Well, it's quite simple. Believe what the Scriptures teach. Believe what the Scriptures say about God, that He's good and kind and loving and merciful and powerful, and He created you and He created every person. He's made us in His image. That He's righteous. Believe what it says that He will judge us according to our deeds. Believe what it says when it teaches we're born spiritually dead and we are not fit for heaven. We are not welcome into God's eternal realm. 
Believe what it says that we cannot save ourselves through our own efforts. Believe what it says when it teaches that Jesus was the Redeemer who was promised all the way back in the opening chapters of Genesis, that He's the Savior of the world. Believe what it says when it teaches that His once-for-all atoning sacrifice, that His forgiveness and eternal life may be found in Him if you repent and believe that. And believe what it says in Romans, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, these are... uh, these are sobering words. They're haunting. Because uh, every one of us knows that their day is going to come that we will leave this life. And uh, we try to guess at what's on the other side. We try to soothe ourselves with notions. And yet, your word is clear. So we pray, Father, that we give you thanks that you are giving us another warning and that you're giving us instruction. We pray that we would have trust and faith in you. And know that as of today, with our faith in Christ, our sins can be all forgiven. And that we have made your son and your daughter. And we pray for sensitivity to your Holy Spirit. We pray for uh, hearts and minds that would be open. Even for those that maybe walked in here and they did not have ears to hear, we pray that your Holy Spirit this very moment might give them faith to believe and to cast themselves onto Christ by faith. Uh, to save them, make them new people. In Jesus' name, amen.